It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places, and while you're there, please rate the podcast, give it a review if you've got a few minutes, and share the podcast with your friends. Sharing is the best way to help out a podcast. My podcast, whatever podcast you listen to, sharing is very important. So let's increase the listenership from the five people who ever listen to this. 20? Can we shoot for 100? Probably not. Not with my update schedule, but, you know, I, I, I'm i working full-time back, you know, in the classroom and all that. Well, not this week, but whatever. That's another story. That, that's not important. Anyway, let's try to increase our listenership. Today, we have another episode from the Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History series. And in fact, today's episode is the second edition, the second episode in the Badass Women in Japanese History sub-series. So yay, finally getting around to doing a little bit of research and translation. Not a whole lot, but you know, enough to give you a new episode. So yeah, I was thinking that maybe Tomoe Gozen she would be a very good topic, but she was a semi-mythical warrior woman in the 12th century. There, there are no contemporaneous accounts verifying her existence. Now, that's not to say she didn't exist. It's very possible that she did exist, at least in some form. Maybe not the version that that, that Japanese people know, but it's possible she existed. So I'll probably come around, you know, come back to her at some point. In, in my process of doing all that, I was looking at the history of women warriors in Japan. And I came across another much more recent example, okay, more recent than the 12th century, I should say. I mean, her, this, the woman we're talking about today, her story is still over 150 years old. But, you know, anyway, that it's more, it's, it's more recent than the 12th century. So this woman we're talking about today, she was also a badass woman who made her name in battle. Now... I don't want to fall into the trap of history just being about wars and battles. You know, poets, scientists are also very important people. I mean, heck, everyday normal people are important people too. You know, and I have a few scientists, I have some poets and all them. I've got people lined up who I want to talk about at some point once I finally get down and and do some research and do some reading. But... It's just that, you know, if you know anything about Japanese society, women making a name for themselves in war is unusual, or at least that's the perception. Although, having done some reading, I think it's a lot less rare than a lot of people realize. But anyway, let's go on with our story. So today, we're talking about a young woman by the name of Nakano Takeko. Now, Nakano is her family name, in case you're not familiar with Japanese naming conventions. And after reading a lot of Japanese history, it's really nice, actually, to talk about someone with a much more modern-sounding name. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people alive today in Japan with the name Nakano Takeko. Nakano is a very common name in Japan. 
Um, it's the 50th most common name. Uh, there's about 300,000 or so people in the country with that surname. And Takeko, it's, it's slightly old-fashioned, you know, maybe women in their 40s and 50s, but it, it's a name that is still used for girls. I have known a few Takekos in my time here in Japan. I mean, this is really neither here nor there with regards to our story, but it's just something that I was thinking. It's like, hey, there's a, here's a name that if I saw this on my class rosters, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So Nakano Takeko was born in April of 1847 in Edo, which is the old name for Tokyo. Now, Tokyo became Tokyo in 1868 when the capital of the country was moved. Uh, And in fact, the moving of the capital is connected to her story, and we'll get there eventually. But for now, let's just say that the name Tokyo literally means Eastern capital, which is in opposition to Kyoto, which was the capital before Tokyo. And in case you didn't know, Kyoto literally means capital city. But today's protagonist, um, Nakano, she was was born before the name change when Tokyo was still Edo. Now, she was born into privilege— a lot of privilege. Her father was a very important samurai from the Aizu um, domain, which is a domain in northern Japan, modern-day Fukushima. Yes, that Fukushima, the one that had the nuclear reactor problems after the earthquake, that, that Fukushima. Different part of the prefecture, but that area. Not far from where I live now, in fact. Um, and this is something that I want to talk about eventually, for now, just a very, very, very short version of it. During the Tokugawa shogunate, so the Tokugawa's, they're the last shoguns. During the Tokugawa shogunate, everyone who was of any importance in Japan was required to maintain a residence in Edo, which was the shogun's seat of power. So despite Nakano Takeko's father being based in Aizu, Takeko was born in Edo, in Tokyo. Again, this is a bit of a tangent, but this is something that's actually pretty important in Japanese history, and I promise I will get back to my crash course in Japanese history someday. There'll be a nice playlist. You can just kind of listen for a few hours and kind of get get all the basics of Japanese history. Just all the basics. Get, get a lot of the basics. But for today's story, that's it, that you, you got enough. So, besides her father being a samurai, Takeko's maternal grandfather was also a fairly big samurai. Which, I mean, that makes sense. Her father was a big shot samurai, so his wife would almost have to be the daughter of another important samurai. I mean, Japan was like most other places in that way. You know, the elite partner with the elites to perpetuate their dominance and whatever. And, you know, we're not going to get into a debate about that. You know, is that good or bad? I mean, it's not a good thing, but it's a bad thing. But that's not important today. What we're talking about today was a young woman who did some major ass-kicking. So Takeko was born into a lot of privilege. 
She was the oldest of three children, and she had a younger brother, uh, Toyoki, and a younger sister, Yuko. And starting around the age of six, and continuing until she was 16, she received training in the Confucian classics, calligraphy, and importantly for our story, martial arts. This would not have been strange for children of her class for this time, even for the girls, to receive some martial arts training. If your parents, if your, if your father and your grandfather are both samurai, it's very likely for a girl to receive some martial arts training. So, at some point, she was adopted by her, her teacher, her, her martial arts teacher, the famed swordsman Akaoka Daisuke. Now, from what we know, she loved her studies, both the mental and the physical. She loved reading about the strong women in Japanese history, empresses, women warriors, and generals, because yes, those existed. I mean, in particular, Tomoe Gozen, the semi-mythical woman warrior that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Now, let me just clarify just a bit about what I mean by semi-mythical. Now, Tomoe Gozen appears in The Tale of Heike, which is a 14th century epic, telling the story of the Genpei War, which was a major, major civil war in Japanese history in the 12th century. And this was the war that led to the first shogunate in Japan. Now, this epic is composed well over a 100 years after the actual events of the Genpei War. The woman warrior Tomoe Gozen appears in this epic. Now, some of the figures that appear in the epic absolutely were real people. There is record of them in other official documents. But there are also a lot of people who show up in this story that they're unverifiable by any other means. Tomoe Gozen is one of these figures, one of the people that only appears in the, the, the tale of the Heike. So she's a major figure in the story. She's a woman who's a very prominent warrior who's fighting in support of one of the warlords who are the, the main, the, the, the fighting, the, the, the sides of the Genpei War. And she shows up in a lot of the subsequent literature after that based on the tale of the Genpei, of the, of the, keep getting the name wrong here, the tale of the Heike. So she shows up in a lot of stories based on this epic work. But that's the only source of information we have of her, and it's not a reliable historical source. But all this, this is not terribly important to today's story. It's important to know that she was a major figure in Japanese literature from that time on. So what's important for today's story is that Nakano Takeko, today's focus, loves reading about Tomoe Gozen. And she is inspired by Tomoe Gozen. So Takeko, she is learning to use swords from a famed swordsman, and eventually... Nakano Takeko earns her menkyo, her, her certification, her license, 
in a style of swordsmanship that uses one blade. There are several different types of swordsmanship in Japan. Some using one, some using two blades, some using a, a long blade and a short blade. There, there are lots of different ways to use swords and other various type, similar types of weapons in Japan, in Japanese martial arts. Now, the weapon that Nakano Takeko is most associated with is the Naginata, which is a type of polearm, which is, it, it resembles the, the European glaive, um, if you're into obscure weapons. It basically take a Japanese sort, short sword and put it on the end of a long pole, and you've got yourself a Naginata. It, it, that's an oversimplification, but you get the basic idea. Now, the Naginata has a very strong association with female fighters in Japan. It was not exclusively used by women, but it is strongly associated with them. Part of the reason is leverage. So with the long pull, the force applied is amplified in such a way as to make it an extremely effective weapon against a much larger and stronger opponent. And apparently... Takeko was extremely gifted with the Naginata. Now, again, this kind of goes against the image that a lot of people have of women in Japan. I mean, especially if you visited modern Japan. But, as I say, it was extremely common for the daughters of samurai to receive weapons training, especially the Naginata. And Nakano Takeko was skilled enough that she would later go on to teach Naginata to other women in the households of other samurai, and she ended up in Niwase, which was a domain in modern-day Okoyama, which is out in western Japan. So she was employed as both the domain lord's wife's secretary and Naginata teacher. And after a few years of this, she left Niwase to go to Osaka with her teacher, who was, remember, her adoptive father. And here, she seemed to have been helping with some security detail in Kyoto, which is not far from Osaka. As to why security details were needed, um, I mean, there were a whole bunch of feudal lords and their retainers still running around. So there was always a need for security details. But by this point, which is 1863, the country was beginning to descend into widespread unrest. So in the early 1850s, Commodore Matthew Perry from the U.S. had sailed into Japan and demanded that the U.S. be given access to the country. Japan, which was at this point under the Tokugawa shogunate, had been following isolationist policies for well over 200 years. But when the Convention of Kanagawa, a very one-sided treaty, was signed in 1854, opening two ports to the U.S., it showed a major weakness within the shogunate. And this treaty led to other similar treaties between 1854 and 1858 with the other major powers of the day, uh, the U.K., Russia, France. And all of these very uneven treaties led very directly to the Boshin War, which was a civil war between supporters of the emperor and supporters of the shogun. The Boshin War began in 1868, the same year as the Meiji Restoration, 
which is when the Meiji Emperor and his supporters reasserted the power of the Emperor over the Shogun, which was a big deal. Now, Japan had been ruled by various shoguns, warlords, essentially, for nearly 700 years. And with the sudden intrusion of foreign powers in the 1850s, some segments of the ruling class began questioning whether or not the Tokugawa shoguns were the best option for the country. Some of the ruling class still backed the shogunate, and some began backing a restoration of true power to the imperial throne. Now, the emperor had never been deposed, despite nearly seven centuries of sidelining. And this is obviously a topic in and of itself for at least an episode, if not an entire mini-series. For today's episode, let's just say this was the environment that Nakano Takeko was coming of age into. Now, during the increasing unrest, she decided that it was time to leave the Osaka-Kyoto area and head back to Edo to be with her birth family. Eventually, she and her birth family made their way back to Aizu, which again, northern Japan, Fukushima. Now, this is probably sometime in early 1868. And here, she was teaching Naginata to the women and children of the local samurai. At this point, she's... 20, 21 years old. Um, I mean, records obviously aren't that. They're not as they're not as as, as clear cut as they are today. But like I say, 20, 21 years old at this point. By this point, the forces supporting the emperor are pretty much routing the supporters of the shogun. The shogun's supporters were not going out quietly though. And one of the domains that was standing loyally by the shogun was the Aizu domain the domain that Nakano's family had served for generations. And Takeko was not one to abandon her family and friends. Not going to get into the ins and outs of the Boshin War and who I think was more in the right, the imperial supporters, the shogunate supporters, whatever. Again, that's another entire mini-series of episodes that maybe we can get to someday. But, yeah, we'll, we'll just say... There's two sides, supporters of the emperor, supporters of the shogun. Neither is a great option, um, but whatever. Anyway, eventually, the imperial forces began to move into Aizu, and it was clear that shit was about to get real. Commence the Battle of Aizu. So Takiko, along with her mother Koko, and her younger sister Yuko, as well as a couple dozen other noble women, formed the Women's Brigade. Now, it is worth noting that Aiz was noted as a militarily strong domain, a place where anyone and everyone who was anyone received military training, including the girls and the women. So, most of the women around the castle probably knew their way around a naginata as well as maybe some other swords and things because that's what you do as the fighting was growing nearer to the castle the women debated about what to do with yuko takiko's younger sister so remember takiko is 21 maybe 22 at this point 
Her younger sister was only 16, though, I mean, this is 1868, so she probably would have been considered a full adult at this point. But she was apparently very beautiful, as was Takeko. I mean, doesn't really matter to the story, but, you know, uh, given that the Imperial forces, you know, they were taking no prisoners up to that point, I guess the worry was that Yuko would have been raped and killed had she fallen into enemy hands. I mean, it's pretty shitty that that was a thing that they had to consider, but that was a thing. In the end, it was decided that Yuko, because remember, she also had received military training, martial arts training, it was decided that Yuko was best off joining the women's brigade and fighting alongside her mother and her older sister. Another thing that was discussed by the women was what to do if one of them was killed or mortally wounded in battle. The decision was made that to avoid becoming a trophy for the enemy, if one of them was to die or be mortally wounded in battle, it was best to behead the wounded party and retreat with the head to avoid the enemies taking the head as a trophy, which was a thing that Japanese samurai did. So the battle began, and the imperial forces were overwhelming. However, the forces defending Aizu were able to hold off the larger imperial forces for, you know, a couple of days at least. Kind of hold them off, hold them at bay, but ultimately there was little hope of defeating the imperial forces, the much larger and more heavily armed imperial forces. The Imperial Forces had more modern guns, which is another thing that was worth talking about eventually. But Still, Takeko and her women warriors offered their services to the commander of the Aizu Forces, who, as a very traditional Japanese man of the day, said no. He probably felt that allowing women to fight alongside his men would have been an embarrassment. Despite the fact that the forces of Aizu were vastly outnumbered and that Takeko and her women were very highly trained with their weapons. However, despite, you know, this, the, the commander saying no, other members of the chain of command eventually allowed the women to officially fight as their own unit, not alongside their male compatriots, but at the very least kind of in parallel to their male compatriots. On October 10th, Takeko and the other women of the Women's Brigade ended up confronting a group of Imperial soldiers. And I'm not sure if it was an offensive or a defensive kind of strike. I've seen both versions. Um, that's not really important. It's kind of irrelevant here. Apparently, the opposing commander initially thought that the Women's Brigade was a group of young boys. Now, the women had either cut their hair off or had it tied back very tightly, so their hair, or maybe maybe a top knots, I don't know exactly. And they were wearing hakama, which is a type of trousers that are worn over a kimono. Now, hakama are not exclusively worn by men, but they are more commonly worn by men. Um, for whatever reason, right, the commander of the opposing troops initially thought that the women were young boys, but then they realized that Takeko, her mother, her sister, the other women were in fact women. 
He ordered his men not to fire, unaware of the fact that Takeko and the others were, in fact, out for blood in defense of their home country. Now, reports are that Takeko killed five or six men by herself. If we're being honest, that's quite likely an exaggeration. I suppose it's not out of the realm of possibility that she, I mean, she was very skilled with the Naginata, but it does seem at the very least slightly unlikely that one woman, no matter how badass she may have been, was able to kill six soldiers who were armed with firearms, mind you. It seems unlikely that she would have been able to kill six soldiers by herself before they were able to stop her. Now, the entire women's brigade killing six soldiers, that seems very likely, very realistic. Regardless, the women's brigade, they were armed with naginatas, we were pole arms, were going up against modern, for the time, firearms. The women were doomed from the start. Eventually, the imperial soldiers, after taking some casualties, realized what was going on and opened fire on the women's brigade. One shot struck Takeko in the chest, and she fell from the wound. Nakano Takeko was dead. As she and her mother and sister had agreed, Yuko tried to carry out her older sister's last wish, cutting off her head to prevent the opposing soldiers from claiming it as a trophy. Yuko, tired, probably both physically and emotionally, was unable to perform the act by herself, and she asked for the aid of another soldier from the Eyes Domain. Now, here's one part of the story I don't quite get. Now, I know there, you know, there are the code of battlefield conduct, but I'm not exactly sure how Yuko would have had the time to try to cut off Takeko's head herself, realize she didn't have the strength, find a warrior from Aizu to ask to have him do the beheading, all of this without the enemy who had adopted pretty much a scorched earth policy at this point. The timeline doesn't quite add up to me. I, I Maybe I'm missing something, but I something doesn't quite add up. Who knows? Somehow, maybe it really did happen this way. Somehow, like, Yuko got Takiko's head. Anyway, the story is that Yuko, Yuko took Takiko's head to a nearby temple for a proper, honorable burial. She gave Takiko's naginata to the temple as well. Apparently, it's still on display at this temple in... Uh, Fukushima. I mean, I take that with a small grain of salt. Um, I mean, I, it could be true. It very well could be true, but I see very little to verify and guarantee that it is true. So maybe, maybe her naginata is on display at this temple in Fukushima. Um, yeah. Anyway. After Takeko's death, the warriors of Aizu managed to postpone the inevitable for a few days, maybe a week or so, but in the end, Aizu fell. While the Boshin War would continue for a short time, about half a year, maybe a year, not, not quite a year after this, moved up even further north, up into Hakodate, 
uh, Hokkaido, uh, with the establishment of the short-lived Republic of Ezo. Um, yeah, there, there was a br- briefly Hokkaido was its own country. Um, but anyway, yeah. So there was the Battle of Hakodate and the establishment of the Republic of Ezo, and that was the very, very end of the Boshin War. But the Battle of Eyes signaled that the end was nigh for the supporters of the Shogun. Anyway, as I have said, Nakano Takeko's Naginata is possibly on display at a small temple in Fukushima, and she is still a hero in that region, and for good reason. So the women of Eyes, led by Takeko, showed themselves to be badasses. Supposedly, nearly 10% of all the soldiers who surrendered in the battle were women. While plenty of people in Japan are probably aware of women warriors throughout the history of the country, that doesn't seem to stop the sexism and gender discrimination that is very common here. It's kind of an odd thing, honestly. I know I'm going slightly off track here, but some of Japan's most successful athletes are women. Now, I know athletes and warriors aren't the same thing, but in a world where all-out bloody hand-to-hand combat is largely gone, athletes are something of a proxy for that kind of person. And just follow along here for just a minute here. Thinking about, for example, soccer. Japanese women's soccer team. The Japanese women's soccer team, they've won the Women's World Cup. They are regularly contenders for the best soccer team in the world. You know, obviously, they're not going to beat the U.S. that much because the U.S. women's soccer team is head and shoulders above the rest of the world. But Japan is up there. They're their top-tier women's soccer team. The men's team? Meh. I mean, they're middling at best. Better than the U.S. team, but that's not saying much. And yet, the women's team is treated pretty poorly, honestly. You know, despite all the media coverage. Because yes, when the women's team, when they're playing, Japan's media is all like, yay, women's soccer. And then, eh, they had to fly coach when they went to the World Cup and came back champions. The men's team, despite falling, you know, despite despite not getting out of the first round, first class the whole way. Go figure. Now, obviously, I know Japan is not alone in this problem. It's kind of the world over. I get it. That's not a Japan exclusive thing. But actually, I'm honestly, I'm not even sure exactly what I'm trying to say. But yeah, Japan, there is this history of that a lot of people know. Famous women warriors, famous women doing pretty badass things. And yet... Look at the way the country is right now. Anyway, my main point here is that Nakano Takego, she was a badass. And she should be remembered for stepping outside the box that Japanese society tried to put her in as a woman. So good for her, even if it was in the name of upholding the shogunate, which by the 1860s was outdated and problematic. But, I mean, the other side of the fight... Yeah, it's not saying they weren't problematic, because trust me, the, the 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 other side of the, the fight was also very problematic. I mean, 
Pretty much everything is problematic if you look hard enough, but anyway, I'm kind of rambling on, and I think that is where we will leave today's edition of Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History, a badass Japanese women's edition. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. This podcast is on most of the major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, um, probably some others, but I don't know that anyone uses others. Um, If it's not on your favorite platform, please let me know, and I will look into getting it on that platform as well. Uh, You can find the Twitter for this podcast at JustAnotherCast. You can send emails to the show at... Uh, just another jerk podcast at gmail.com and you can find all that information and more on our website yes we have a website uh, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod that's tinyurl.com slash jerkpod and that is all for me I am Jonathan Isaacson and I am out peace peace